You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Hey folks, just want to let you know that this episode hits really close to home. Michigan, several years ago, got hold of CWD. It's something that doesn't go away. It's something that you almost have to create a new normal around. In fact, my home county has now been included in the testing area. It's not here, but they suspect at some point it could be. That's scary. And as someone who pursues game for the feast, for the harvest of meat, this is something that I really put as a priority. If I can't eat it, I probably won't pursue it. So anyway, when I heard about this study, I got super excited. So know that, yeah, this is personally something I find really important. But also what's really important is you guys that have been listening. So I appreciate the folks that have begun following and the folks that have uh, uh, chimed in. Thank you so much. Uh, Continue to leave us reviews. Continue to leave us ratings. It helps us out. It helps get the message out. And if you yourself are a home processor or know a home processor, they need to hear about this episode. Please forward it along to them. All right. Let's get this party started. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, where we celebrate our hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos, no status, just catch it, cut it, and cook it. This is episode 35, Deactivation of CWD with Bleach. Home Butchers Rejoice. Nick tracks down Dr. Brent Race, a lead scientist from the National Institutes of Health 
who worked on the study inactivation of chronic wasting disease prions using sodium hydrochlorate. The findings are exciting and promising for home or commercial processors who could be butchering infected deer. We're going to get into a discussion on how this works, what we need to use, and how this is going to play out in a process that you might want to add into your home butchery. So sit back, take some notes. Here we go. Good evening, folks. Hey, another beautiful night here in Michigan. Um, I think we got something super exciting uh, for us folks who head out into the woods and and chase uh, venison specifically. Also, for our folks that are also home processors, I think this is going to be uh, a piece of info that we are super stoked about. But I am sitting digitally across from Dr. Brent Race. Um, He is a PhD in the veterinarian field. He took the lead on a recent study on the effects of bleach with CWD. Dr. Br- or Dr. Race, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, we recently completed a project with bleach, and Nick wanted you guys to get to know me a little better. And I was born in Montana, and I've done my best to always stay close to home. I love the Northwest, and I love Montana. So I got an undergraduate education at Carroll College in Helena, Montana. I didn't go too far away and got veterinary school completed at Washington State University. Unfortunately, I don't have a PhD, just a DVM, oh, okay. and uh, went from there. So we can restart your record <laughs> if you want. I'm no, that's again. that's totally fine. We'll just go with my mistake. But uh, yeah, hey, you got more letters behind your name than I do. Well, I've, I've been told by a lot of the PhD folks around the laboratory that they're ahead of us in education compared to the DVM. So they put me in my place all the time. So I, I'm a lowly veterinarian, and uh, I spent a few years in clinical practice, and then I had the opportunity to go into research for the National Institutes of Health here in Hamilton, Montana, called the Rocky Mountain Laboratories, uh, working on prion diseases and also some viral infections. And I took that job in... 2006. I've been at Rocky Mountain Labs ever since, and I feel like this project was probably one of the more meaningful ones we've completed. Although it wasn't isn't in our true job description, we knew it was something that would be well received and much needed out there in the hunting population for sure. Yeah, as a veterinarian, are you looking at uh, wild game specifically, or are you looking at wild game and domestic livestock, uh, kind of the relationship between the two, where do you stand as far as a, as a vet goes? So my project, although I'm trained as a veterinarian, I'm hired as a staff scientist and essentially all of my research is performed in a, inside a laboratory or in our animal facilities and our animal facilities house essentially mice, rats, hamsters, and there's a few folks doing monkey studies, but I don't do any hands-on work with Uh, livestock in my research setting anymore. I still dabble with livestock on the side. And then uh, hunting, of course, brings me in contact with game animals, but I don't actually get paid to work with deer or elk, which is unfortunate. I end up working with a lot of their tissues. Well, hey, you know, you're keeping business and pleasure or business, yeah, business and pleasure on either side at that point. So you are coming in with I don't want to say necessarily an academic bias, but you're really you from this study, you were hoping for for something to happen. Am I right? 
Right. Well, we've we had a lot of requests from biologists. We had requests from game wardens. We had mentions from hunters that we know and ourselves being hunters realizing that and I could process my own meat. My technician, Katie, who's the lead author on the paper, they process their own meat in their own home. And we realized these folks are asking us what what can be done if you're working with animals that come from a CWD affected area. And we thought, you know, we've been really we've got great methods to inactivate prions within the laboratory, but none of those methods really are applicable to the common citizen, nor are they affordable or safe. And we looked at what we had available and realized, you know, bleach has been used effectively against other prion agents, but then realized no one's actually specifically tested and published that bleach will work on chronic wasting disease. And we, neither of us felt comfortable giving advice or recommendations on how to use bleach against CWD unless we actually did the test and had it peer reviewed and published scientifically. And so we designed some experiments. We really set the bar high initially, which you can't tell from the manuscript because you see that we tested lots of different concentrations of bleach with different exposure times. But we really were hoping that, yeah, maybe we can throw a little bit of bleach on for a minute and we'll get great inactivation. Well, that turned out not to be the case, and we ended up working backwards, essentially using more and more bleach for longer amounts of time until we got to a, basically conditions where we felt like there was good inactivation of CWD prions. To get everybody on the, the same page, um, I know it's been published either in, in um, documentation or even in um, podcast, but we've thrown around CWD, chronic wasting disease, um, as much as we've been trying to push out accurate information, there's always that inaccurate information that goes back and forth. Um, help get us on the same page, at least uh, talking in our conversation. What is a prion? So a prion is a word to describe a type of protein that's in all mammals, essentially. And prion protein, if we stick with that term, is just the description of the prion protein. We all have prion proteins in us. And it's not a problematic situation until the protein misfolds, whether this occurs spontaneously, which is what causes sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or in the case of transmissible prion diseases, like chronic wasting disease in deer and elk, where a transmissible prion disease is essentially a prion protein that's misfolded, that is now able to interact with normal prion protein and cause them to also misfold and it's the misfolded prion protein that actually leads to prion diseases. So it's a little bit, I understand the confusion out there because we all have these normal prions and it's not until they become the abnormally folded form that we see diseases caused in the, in the brain and spinal cord. Yeah, I think back to, maybe it's a bad analogy, but I think back to the movie Outbreak where there's the Ebola virus and then through some transmission with the monkey and to humans, that it becomes airborne, and that's where that that whole movie kind of takes up. Not to put the movie and the actual um, situation we have going into the the same pot, but just spontaneously that you know through randomness, that's where you get the the mutation in the prion. Right, that's correct for for the spontaneous conditions in humans. They. You know, they've looked for a causal link to because it takes kind of an imagination to say, oh, you've lived fine for 60 years and now your protein decides to misfold. Well, 
in fact, that's really what they do believe with sporadic CJD in that as you age, you lose the ability to basically clear misfolded proteins. And if you start to accumulate misfolded prion proteins and you're not able to clear them and they're able to self-replicate at that point, then you start essentially accumulating a prion disease. So the, the sporadic forms are different than the transmissible forms in a way that we don't have a link. And then there's also genetic forms, which we probably don't want to get into, but that's where there's actually mutations in the genes that lead to your, your prion gene is basically mutated. And so instead of making normal prion protein, your genes tell the prion gene to be abnormal. And many of those conditions actually cause misfolded prion protein, and those will be disease-causing all on their own. So prion diseases come in three, three styles, the sporadic form, transmissible forms, and the genetic forms. And if we're talking primarily with just chronic wasting disease, that is definitely a transmissible prion disease among deer and elk and moose. And reindeer basically if it's got a four-chambered stomach and it's a it's an ungulate it's going to fall prey to this specific correct definitely cervids anyway we'll stick with the cervid classification anyway gotcha so yeah in recent times it's, it's just been spreading it seems like like wildfire and so it's it's great to hear that studies are being done that research is being done to see how we can best put a stop to this and i mean just in the nature of what it is, it's never going to go away, but we're going to need to adapt. And like you guys are doing research, how do we now live this new normal with this new um, prion that lives now on our landscape? Um, in general, the concentration of these mutated prions, they lay heavy within the nervous system. We're looking at those either in the brain, in the spinal column, um, is it true to say that, like, within muscle tissue, that is a less concentration area? That's correct. And in research models where they've compared brain concentrations to muscle tissue, we believe there's a 1,000 to even 10,000-fold less prions or infectious prions in muscle tissue. So that's, that's good news for folks consuming muscle. Um, and definitely would not want to be consuming brain or spinal column in any form um, at this point but you know our our primary research here at rml that i didn't talk about was we do a lot of work looking at species barriers for prion infection so I mentioned that chronic wasting disease was transmissible within cervids a lot of our focus is can it cross to humans and those papers are not what we're really talking about today but right now we don't think that chronic wasting disease can affect humans i think we're still early in the process, being that prion diseases have such a long incubation period that we really need to give it more time to feel confident that humans are safe. And so that was another motivation for this study, for sure, was folks are going to come into contact with deer and elk that are infected with CWD. They're going to have contaminated equipment. We wanted a method that they could decontaminate that with to be on the safe side. So definitely a maybe overcautious since we still don't think it transmits to humans, but it's easy to do to, to be cautious, especially if you know you've dabbled in a CWD positive deer and removed the head and taken the skull cap. And now, now what? You get your test result back in 10 days. You've got a positive animal. What do you do with that knife? What do you do with those saws? How about your cutting board? So again, more motivation for this study to find something that 
individuals can use in a home setting for dealing with infectious prions. Yeah, I want to jump on that tangent real real fast just because I feel like that was a really good um, focus that you guys were going with is that you're looking at the barrier. And that was, I, I think I was going to get into that later as well, but this jump from from cervids to to humans and that was Benny that's a huge deterrent I mean that's what really I think we're all worried about there has not been a proven case at least not that I've know of and that you know now I'm hearing from somebody who works specifically with that to say that that hasn't happened but I know that nobody wants to be patient zero on on this whole thing um but you said work is being done on this and you're finding that there is a good barrier between the two. I mean, we're not going to say absolute because there's, there's still things we're finding out, but things seem to be looking good as far as there being a pretty sound species barrier. That's, I like how you sum that up. There's, we're not going to say it's an absolute barrier at this point, but we feel like there's a fairly strong species barrier. Some of the best evidence that's out there, I think comes from the epidemiology of prion diseases in humans and the centers of disease control and the prion surveillance um, center and Case Western are essentially watching human populations that develop prion disease. And they're trying to determine, is there an increased incidence of prion diseases in areas where people are consuming more deer and elk that might have CWD? They're also really looking hard to see, are there an increased number of cases in young individuals, say 20, 30, 40 year olds developing prion disease? Those type of conditions Prion disease is a sporadic form for sure. It doesn't often show up in middle-aged folks. And so if you start to see the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds come down with a prion disease, that's a huge red flag. And you need to figure out, okay, this probably wasn't sporadic. It's likely not genetic. Maybe this was a transmissible form. And they should be looking closer to see if there's a link to CWD consumption and uh increased cases in young people. And essentially that's what happened in the United Kingdom is they realized, look, we're having a lot of prion diseases in young individuals. What's, what's the cause here? And uh, eventually they made the link. Um, it was much too late in many cases, but in the case of CWD, the public health folks are aware of it. And most hunters are aware of it too. And, you know, there were, they're being a close eye is being kept on the population, but, that said, that first case number one, that index case, if it does come about, it may be 20 years after the exposure to CWD infected material. So I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but this is, I guess, why it's important to exercise caution because we still don't know. And with something with long incubation periods, meaning decades potentially, better to be safe than sorry because the jury is probably still out on whether we'll have some human transmissions. Excellent. Yeah, that was a lot to chew, but um Yeah, I'm, I'm... you might have to really crop that down. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's promising news. And continuing on with this with this bright future is that um yeah, we've got, you know, equipment, butchery equipment that we're using. Um, you know, I've got some knives that not only I mean it's a tool, but at the same time I got a little sentimental value to it. And so I want to be able to use that you know, more as a ceremonial thing, but now I have to worry that now I've got contamination potentially on that. And through some procedures, you know, we're going to be able to be just fine. And, but to say that, Hey, I can keep that knife because of 
some actions that we take using this bleach, um, you found a way to deactivate. You're not necessarily killing it. You're not, it's not washing away, but explain to me that how are you deactivating this prion with the use of bleach? Right. So essentially we're likely changing the folding properties of the prion and the bleach is changing the form of the prion protein so that it can't interact and form abnormal prions, likely through a cross-linking mechanism. Um, the mechanism we used on the, um, our study to measure whether the bleach was inactivated was to see if the prions that were left could actually seed a reaction. And by that, I mean, if we put a sample in that we think has prions into a whole pool of normal prions, can that abnormal prion make that pool of prions change? And so that's sort of the gist of the assay we do, and it's an amplification assay. And uh, we were able to show that after bleach treatment, the prions were either changed so dramatically or they were damaged so much, they were no longer able to promote any more, uh, basically, amplification of additional prions. So although our study did not actually use what we would consider animal bioassay to prove that there were no infectious proteins left, we made sure that there were no prion proteins able to seed the amplification reaction. And we feel pretty comfortable saying those two are very similar. There's been side-by-side -side studies in many cases that have shown that what we call elimination of seeding activity correlates well with elimination of true infectious material. And so that's it was somewhat of a surrogate for having to wait two to three years to get a nice animal bioassay done. With the experiment setup, um, you know, you're you're basically infecting rods of stainless steel, at least by my quick glance over. Um, and you can correct me on on how this all went, but anyway, you're you're basically putting you're infecting the the rods, which then you then place into um, the bleach solution. And that's where then after that time period or whatever um, treatment is given to that, that then goes into the prion liquid to see if there's, if they make any mutation at that point. Is that basically the, uh, the experiment you're putting together? Right. That's a great summary of it. And uh, miraculously, it's not hard to put prions on materials. They'd love to stick to materials. So, we essentially made a slurry of chronic wasting disease brain and put the wires in to fully immerse them for an hour and heavily coat them with a really, really high load of prions. After that, we took them out of that prion bath and dried them off, basically allowed them to air dry, similar to what's going to happen in any scenario where you're out in the field or processing. You're working and then your tools are going to dry. And of course, the dry, crusty stuff is always the stuff that's hard to get off. Well, after the wires were dried, then we exposed them to the different bleach concentrations and exactly that after the testing with bleach, the same wires were taken then directly into this test. It's a nice, unique test that we were able to use very short pieces of wire where rather than trying to take some solution sample into that test, we actually put the entire wire that had been immersed and then treated into the new assay to see if we can amplify any prions off it. So kind of a unique model in that sense and uh, then we run that test for two to three days looking to see if there's any amplification and after that we get the readout and find out what what concentrations of bleach really look promising and you were 
looking specifically, I mean, these are stainless steel rods. Um, is it something about the stainless steel that works with the bleach as far as like, um, how well the, the, uh, prion adheres to it? Like, what are we going to do about say a, a plastic surface or like the sure. plastic handle? Is that something you guys looked into or is this really like, well, the study was done specifically with stainless steel. We specifically use stainless steel and then we also use just brain slurries in a different part of the experiment. And then we did the solid tissues, which we can get into later. But as far as materials that we bound the prions to, all we tested were stainless steel. We, we kind of felt like this is probably the most common thing that saws knives and some grinding equipment going to be a lot of stainless steel. So that's why we picked that material knowing that also stainless steel binds prions really well. With that said, bleach is a great surface decontaminant. And if you're using materials that are non-porous and the bleach can come into contact with the prions, I don't see why it wouldn't work on other surfaces. We didn't specifically test other surfaces, but as long as it's being used as just, you know, thin film or surface decontamination, it should certainly still work. Good deal. Cause that was, as I was reading through, I, you know, I saw a lot about stainless steel and I asked a, a good buddy of mine, um, that I really want to know. Cause like everybody's got, you know, their plastic cutting boards or they've got, right. uh, yeah, just the rubber handles. And I understand that, well, even just looking at like a wood cutting board, you know, you've got, you know, you're putting oil into it if you're well maintaining it, but at the same time you could have some fluid seep into the wood and that would be a definite, like, dangerous scenario because now you can't get the bleach down in there far enough but those certainly deep grooves anywhere that's inaccessible to the bleach that's going to be problematic any groove that's going to hold a solid chunk of tissue large enough for you to really easily see can be problematic Um, we did our our third part of the experiments was really to see how ineffective the bleach would be on solids and we knew that bleach doesn't penetrate well and we used 3.5 millimeter wide piece which you can easily see by eye it's a pretty decent chunk but uh, similar to what ends up on a cutting board and we exposed those chunks of tissue to bleach and really didn't see much inactivation at all i think we get a little surface deactive inactivation but the bleach just doesn't penetrate and so made us aware that it is really really important that when you're all done with your knives and saws and equipment it's important to pre-clean and remove all the solids that are visible, and then follow that up with the bleach surface decontamination as a final step. Unfortunately, I don't have a great way for you to get rid of and inactivate those CWD prions in those solids that you just pre-cleaned, but we would recommend that you discard those however your state agencies are recommending getting rid of CWD positive material. Yeah, let's, I'm, I'm, excited to hear that uh we can continue with our good cleaning methods but at the same time now we're adding on this uh i guess I, for lack of a better term disinfecting with the bleach that the cleaning does come first like you got to get every little bit and scrap off that and that's i think i believe, I believe that's a lot of what our um or you know our listeners are doing i believe that's you know something that you know we we write to try to do trying to cut corners there but now even with that extra step of now we have a a disinfecting aspect to it i think that's something that yeah we haven't had to worry about before and now here we're putting 
with this in front of our face. And now we have the opportunity to, to add that disinfecting part. Right. And if it's something where all the work was done and the test result doesn't come back for a couple of weeks and you didn't use bleach initially, you can go back and surface decontaminate with bleach after the fact. Those prions certainly didn't go anywhere in those two weeks. <laughs> oh, they're still there. They're just waiting for you. They're still there. <laughs> uh, and luckily the bleach will still be effective against them. In fact, some of the wires, which I didn't fully dis- show in the paper which ones we kept around for a while, but some of those wires were exposed to the prions for three or four weeks and just kind of hung out in tubes for a while waiting for the study. And they still had a high prion burden, but the bleach was still really effective against those prions weeks later and presumably probably would work years later against them as well. It's incredible to to think that something so small has such a resilience to being eradicated and how, yeah, you can come back even later um, after you've cleaned up and, you know, they're, they're still going to be there. Do they ever detach themselves from surfaces like the stainless steel? Or are we looking at a bond that's almost like electron bond or chemical bond at this point? Because, like, I'm, now I'm thinking, like, as I'm, as I'm cleaning up those bits and doing my best to properly dispose of those those bits the water that i use that does flow down and and out am i going to be releasing some of those through uh through the cleaning aspect of it or when they hit a surface they really like to attach you know we do know that if you try to scrub a surface you will remove some of the prions from that surface and we have some hints that water removed a little bit of seeding activity but not much um how tightly bound some of those prions are to the steel, I don't know for certain. You would think if they were so tightly bound that they wouldn't come off, well, then they're not really a risk, right? Because they're stuck there for that forever. But all these bonds likely can be reversible. And I would guess that they're able to detach at times. Um, we didn't do these specific studies, but uh, it makes sense that some of the bonds are going to be strong. Some aren't so, so strong. So you're the potential for the next use of that knife, if you still had prions on there, maybe the friction of the next surface sheds that prion onto the whatever you cut with it. And that's that's the fear is that, you know, you're you're still have prions on the material and then it's shed onto the next surface or the next slice of meat that you cut through. So that's a, yeah, definitely a concern. If if they were indefinitely stuck there or de- stuck for certain for the ever, it wouldn't be as big a concern. We've got our results here um, that, hey, it's, this is promising. We've, we've made some, some, some leeway. We've made some ground on this. Um, what are you looking for from now, either commercial, pro- commercial processors or even um, home processors? I mean, just de- describing a little bit, you just said adding the disinfecting bit, but what would you like to see happen knowing the processes you went through the the experiment was done what would you like to see become commonplace in both these um do you want to see like a procedure list put up are we are we looking at um you know what what are we what are you hoping now with this information what do you think is going to happen right well that's a great question and it's one where as we wrote up the results we we were faced with, you know, we're in a kind of an interesting situation in our facility. We do a lot of basic science and basic research, but we're not 
the CDC, we're not the USDA, we're not a department that comes out with formal recommendations for how to work on items. And so although we've done the research and we feel like we have a good handle on what conditions of bleach and how long to use the bleach for will work for you, we're not able to make a formal recommendation. And so my hope is that those entities that can make those sort of recommendations will look at our work and either make them available to folks or say, here's, here's our recommendation based on what these folks found. And moving forward, you know, we think that a five-minute exposure to 40% household bleach worked really well on stainless steel. Will that be exactly what's adopted by a different entity? I don't know. But if, if folks know that those conditions worked, they can kind of make the decision on their own in the interim. And, uh, yeah, as far as whether home processors or commercial entities are able to make, make this work for them, I hope so. Um, I've definitely spoken to a lot of home processors already and actually a couple commercial entities, um, some that are members of the American Processors Association. And I kind of told them the same thing. I said, these are great conditions to give you, but these aren't rules. They haven't been adopted. They haven't been given as formal recommendations. So although we've done the work, we, we can't tell you to do this or not to do this. We can just say, you know, five minutes, 40% worked really well. And that was going to be my, my next thing is um, now that we've, we've done the experiment and you just alluded to it right there, that it was a five minute soak of, of that knife or that piece of stainless steel that was down in there. Um, does that work for certain, I mean, we already talked about the non-porous surfaces. Would that be a like liberal spritzing or a, like a pouring of bleach onto a surface? Like right, a, a horizontal so surface, or is that going to be a little tricky? In our experiments, we had the liberty of picking the size and shape we were working with, and so we were able to fully immerse our materials in the bleach solution. I realize that's not going to be the case for large grinders and other equipment, and so although we haven't specifically done those tests, I believe that if you applied bleach liberally through a spray or a really saturated rag and made sure that there was adequate contact time with abundant bleach on those surfaces, you should still be able to see some inactivation uh, without having done, you know, the thin surface film specifically. I can't say how much better or worse it would be, but certainly if the bleach can come in contact with the prion, that's great and it will likely inactivate it pretty rapidly. Um, one thing we did find in our experiments that if we just laid the material in the in the trays and didn't agitate them or make sure we rolled the stainless steel over, if there's steel that's got prions on it that's at the bottom of the tray where the bleach can't really get underneath, I guess, you know, fully bathe the material, it didn't work as well. And so don't just throw something flat into a flat container. Make sure you flip sides, you know, flip it agitate it, make sure there's good um, exchange of bleach onto new surfaces because, you know, if you if it hits that tray and displaces all the bleach underneath it and seals to the bottom of your inactivation vat, for lack of a better term, you may not get as much um, inactivation as you think you are. That's a good point. That would be something I think that, you know, any common man would just look over that. Well, I threw it in the bleach. Yeah, but it didn't right. contact. So. <laughs> yeah thoroughness yeah, spoken, is probably going to be from someone who usually just kind of throws stuff in the disinfectant but uh knowing that 
you need that contact time and it's got to be there. Make sure that all those surfaces get contact time. That's a good pro tip there that, yeah, we can't sit back and um, really uh, be lackadaisical. If we're going to jump in, we're going to be a home processor or we're going to be one of these commercial entities. Like we got to do our darndest. We got to be very thorough uh, with what we're doing. It's, I guess uh, that's a good prelude into the being thorough and being watchful and making sure it's done right is important. The other part of using bleach at the concentration we're throwing out there is bleach can be very damaging to some materials. And so it's not one of those things, throw your equipment in there and go watch a ball game and have a beer. Five minutes was sufficient. You probably want to stick with that. Or if you're going to go longer, watch really, really close to make sure your favorite knife isn't being destroyed. Um, with that said, if you can sit there and kind of monitor for the, all five minutes until you understand what bleach will do to the materials that you're trying to decontaminate, all the better. I mean, our, our goal is not for people to be calling us months down the road and saying, look, you owe me a hundred bucks. I, I just destroyed my newest <laughs> grinder plate and this isn't working for me. And I'm like, you know, we didn't test every metal. We didn't test every surface. And so we do know bleach is caustic, and the longer it's exposed, the worse outcome you might have. So keep an eye on your bleach treatments. Gotcha. So, yeah, with this newfound info, it also comes with a uh, – it is a double-edged knife at this point. Yeah, because you can totally ruin something right. just by leaving it in there too long. That's a, also a very good very good point to think of. Um, so if we're making some procedures here uh, – we're in my mind, I'm making this list out that, um, I got done butchering my deer. I I've submitted my, my test samples to go in. I'm boxing up that deer. And in my mind, I'm going to box it all together and I'm going to put it to the side and that I'm just going to leave it as is until I get my results back. It'd make it It'll, it'll be less hurtful if I have to throw out individual packages, but anyway, to throw out one box would be, <laughs> it would be easier, I guess. Um, but I've got that sitting there. I've got my test results put away. I'm ready now to clean up all of my equipment. I'm going to want to go with a, a pre-clean at this point, um, using, you know, the regular methods of our, of our soap. Um, we're scrubbing with well, something, we, we got to get all that off. And am I going to want to do something with, say, those cloths or that piece of uh, either like the, the Brillo pad or, or whatever I used? Am I going to want to also sack those up and hold tight until we get results back? Because I'm assuming that they're probably going to pick up a lot of those prions as well. I'm not going to want to reuse those. Is that something that's going to have to be kind of a, a lost cause in the whole thing right you're absolutely right i would think any sponges or pads that you use to do the macro cleaning where you're picking up the visible tissues if it's a positive animal those are going to be the materials that really have the most prions on them at this point and you know solid tissues solid cloths they're they're going to be harder to inactivate on those and those larger tissues and so your your idea is not bad i i would agree you know if you could separate those until you knew the test result. If you came back with a positive test result and you had those pre-sacked, uh, you could put those right with the box of deer meat and discard them all together <laughs> uh, rather than trying to salvage your cleaning materials. 
Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times like, when it comes down to it, like sometimes it's just paper towel that we use and that's not a big, big loss. But right. at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm covering all my bases as far as it's almost like I'm treating this like almost like a nuclear spill. Because... Oh, that's right. If you, if you look at how well radiation gets spread around when they like to do those tests with some colored dye that is inert, but just to show if someone puts something on a telephone and then where that hand takes everything to, you're you're absolutely right. There's going to be a lot of potential contamination of items that you know folks are going to think, oh, I'm cleaning, I'm decontaminating. This is this is good. I should be done, but no, you just transferred that material onto your cleaning item. So yeah, absolutely. There's still going to be prions there. Well, hey, while we got you here, thanks again for listening. Dustin, where can our listeners engage more with us? They can check us out on Instagram at Hunnivore. They can check us out on Facebook, The Hunnivore. Or send us an email at Hunnivore at gmail.com. We've also joined the Sportsman's Nation family of passionate outdoorsmen. Um, They come together with lots of great content. You can check out their website at sportsmansnation.com. They're also on Instagram and Facebook with the handle Sportsman's Nation. Um, In fact, if you check out their blog, we have recipes already up. And they are a 2% for conservation company, which means as a business, they give 1% of their time and 1% of their earnings back to the wildlife and wild places that we love. I think that's pretty sweet. Anyway, back to the show. And so now I've gotten everything clean. I I let it air dry because, again, prion's not going anywhere. I want to make sure there's good adhesion to the bleach. So I got my plastic tub or even, heck, if I can even find a stainless steel, like, restaurant dish, that might even work better just knowing that we've got this effect to deactivate the prion. My cutlery has to be completely submerged into there. Um and then that we we did mention earlier, like it's going to have to be a really liberal spray onto the surface of, let's say, a plastic. I have a plastic fillet table that ends up being my my cutting board. So after I've done a thorough scrubbing of that, and now I'm ready to uh, disinfect it, I'm going to really want to load on the bleach to make sure that I get good adhesion and so that it stays in a liquid form for the five plus minutes that I want to leave it on there. Is that what I'm looking to do? I would definitely consider ventilation at that point. Anytime you're going to use bleach at this concentration on a large surface, uh, meaning meaning a large volume, a large surface area of bleach available to um, basically vaporize into the environment, you're going to create potentially a lot of free chlorine and chlorine gas that can be dangerous. And so Ventilation is important if you're going to do large-scale decon. Um, certainly keep that in mind if you're in a tiny, tiny little butcher shack out back. Um, don't overdo the bleach and <laughs> overdo yourself. Yeah, deactivate the prion along with you. That's not what right. we're going for. Um, you were talking about the concentration of 40%. Um, when I pull off a uh, jug of bleach off the shelf, is that what I'm looking at as a hundred percent concentration. So we're going to end up doing like a, a four to one on this as far as do we want to dilute it or 
is that a different concentration of something that I'm pulling off the shelf? No, most of what you said was correct. We're assuming what you're pulling off the shelf is 100%. And then if we were to do the 40%, we would do four parts bleach to six parts water. What might be easier for folks is a one-to-one would give you a 50% bleach solution. We didn't specifically test 50%. We probably should have for simplicity, but there was other reasons why we used 40%. 50% should be just as good. And it's easier to say one part to one part. I can do that. I don't need to get a graduated cylinder with fancy measurements. I'm just going to go one-to-one and make myself a 50% household bleach solution and move forward with that. That's beautiful. Because I know when we start talking numbers, you know, I start drooling off the side of my mouth a little bit. So having a 50% (laughs) one-to-one, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm really excited for this this information to come out and to see what develops of it. And um, I know I was looking really forward to to talking with you and just finding some of the nitty-gritties out about this. Because it does, it does, it hits close to home um, with... Me and a lot of my listeners living right here in Michigan, it's now looking us square in the face, and it's going to be something that we're going to have to live with. And just the work that you guys are doing, um, both to see if that there's going to if there's a barrier and how strong that barrier is. That's all information we're going to be definitely looking forward here down the road. But to just to have a glimmer of hope to say we can continue to do the thing that we love the most. Um, we love to be out in the outdoors and we love to pursue game to harvest the meat from these animals and feed it to our families. And nothing scares us more than having anything go wrong with that whole process. So this has been a wonderful education. I know that's been a lot, I think for not only myself, but my listeners to chew on, but I, I really like what you guys have put together as, as this study. Um, I'm sure the proper emails and submissions and uh you know information dispersion has happened to places like the cdc that are going to hopefully take a look at this and have something to say do you have an idea on when they would possibly say something or is that it's too far down the road to even know right i i don't know how if they'll act on this or just consider that they knew bleach was effective against prions already and this is old news or they'll be excited that, hey, this is CWD with bleach. This is something we should probably pass pass along and move forward and maybe mention on our web page. Um, so far, we've seen that a few states have already put links on their Fish, Wildlife and Park Departments for hunters to access the paper that we put out so that there there is some public um, access that way. Close One was the journal it's published in, and essentially anyone can access any of those scientific papers. That's um, public access, which is great, really why we wanted that paper there. So anyone who wanted to see the details of what we did can get a hold of that paper. But uh, we were excited that some, some departments were already putting links to the paper on their websites. Um, we'll be really excited if, you know, the CDC or someone makes a formal statement to, that they could use these, these methods to help inactivate more prions. Well, good. Hey, folks, why don't we all just stop what we're doing and give a call to the CDC. <laughs> Tell them, hey, look into this because it's it's worrying us all. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure they're aware of it. They keep a pretty good tab on publications that are coming out fresh. Well, good. 
Well, hey, now that I feel better about eating again, I'm going to now have the kind of the crescendo of our show. This is our two-dish breakdown. And you mentioned earlier that uh, you yourself are a hunter, and we kind of skipped over a little bit of what is your what's your favorite species to to chase? Are you in the big game realm, or are you uh, waterfowl? What do you like to pursue there, Dr. Race? You know, I'm definitely a big game pers- in a big game pursuit. Uh, I started hunting as soon as I could keep up with my parents, and I've just kept hunting ever since that day. And now I've got two daughters that are hunting this year, so it's pretty exciting. But, uh, you know, elk with archery equipment during the rut is probably my favorite thing to pursue. But uh, I definitely chase around the whitetail and the mule deer as well when I get opportunity. Last year, I was lucky enough to draw a moose tag in Montana, and I got a nice moose. And I've been thankful to get to help out other friends who draw the special permits. But primarily, I'm an elk and deer hunter out here. Um, we have a lot of fowl around, but I just don't don't seem to have time to chase them or much. Of those species, let's let's stick with the moose. What's been what's been your favorite dish that you've made out of your moose? Yeah. You know, the moose turned out to be pretty darn tough. Um, I've definitely eaten a lot of different game species, and the moose was a disappointment on table quality. However, the moose made fantastic burger, and so. After some grinding, the mo- most of the moose became burger and makes a really nice bacon cheeseburger out of moose, for sure. I like that idea. Yeah, it's it, that's the first I've heard about it because I, I myself, that's my bucket list is uh, to chase after a moose. And yeah, to know that it's going to be slow cooker fare as opposed to uh, just a quick sear. That's good to know. But hey, they make dynamite burgers, huh? <laughs> they do. Do you mix in then, uh, any fat into yours or you go straight straight moose meat? So I mix in fat. So we raise a few cattle on the side and we're always uh, processing the cattle as well. And so we'll save our own fat from those animals. And I'm kind of the, got it down to about five and a half to 6% fat added. And that's where I like to be um, in all the burger that I mix. This year, I'm pretty excited. We've got a hog in the freezer and I did the same thing and saved some of the fat from that hog. And so I might dabble in making some of my own sausages this year, since I've got the access to a whole bunch of extra pork fat. Hey, there you go. That's my favorite go-to is uh, the pork back fat. That's good stuff. I'm, I like mine a little bit fattier. I go 80, 20, just cause I like the burgers okay. stick together. And I like uh, uh meatloaf. That's one thing we do a lot in our house. And so I get a real good connection with that, but Hey, that 5%, I bet you get a really rich, wild game taste out of that you definitely know that it's not coming from beef at that point that's right yep for sure so my next question this one's going to take a little bit more uh thought this is going to take a little more detail um you are treated on a date night uh the girls are off doing something else they're at friend's house or whatnot it's just you and the missus at home uh, because you're so busy, you're going to end up doing dinner for you and your wife in your own home, and you're cooking. What are you making that's going to make this date night go just right? Ooh, our definite date night meal is uh, tenderloin wrapped in thick-cut bacon, and slowly cooked on the grill. And uh, I'll take up to an hour or two if I have to and make sure that bacon's just perfect, crispy, not charred and not raw. And the middle of that tenderloin, as long as I don't mess it up, will be medium rare. And we'll slice that into 
nice circles and enjoy that with, you know, perfect date night. She's taking care of some of the sides because I, that's not my specialty. <laughs> so I'll provide the bacon wrap tenderloin and uh, she'll make the rest of the meal go well. Sounds good. That sounds just heavenly right there. You're going to go with a, a nice heavy beer on that or is that going to be uh, red wine or something? What are you going to serve? Oh, the wife's definitely drinking the red wine and I've probably got a dark beer there. Good deal. Well, hey, Doc, this has been wonderful. I know I've been super excited to, uh, I've actually been thinking about it all week, uh, sitting down talking with you about bleach and prion disease. I know my wife is definitely sick of sick of hearing me talk about it. <laughs> um, but well, where can hopefully, folks... Hopefully oh, some of your listeners can learn something from this and, uh, you know, rest easier at night. Yeah. I actually, I think in my show notes, I'm going to have a link to both the article that you were featured in. And that was my first thing that I found. And then I think through that article, I found the actual write-up and I will try to post both of those in the show notes. So if I have any listeners that want to get right down to the nitty gritties that will have those available uh, for them to read about it. Um, but again, if you want to do a, a quick shameless plug, uh, where can we find more information about, about uh, the institutes of, of health that you work at? You know, a Google search will really get you a l links to many of the. So the National Institutes of Health encompasses many other institutes under them. And we are a smaller unit called the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. It's a big acronym, NIAID. And within that, we're considered the Laboratory of Persistent Viral Diseases. So if folks really wanted to look into our laboratory, if they did a Google search of NIH, and then space LPVD, they would see what some of the other folks in the, our prion group are doing and blurbs about what's being done with, at our facility for sure. Beautiful. Well, hey, hold on just a second there, Brent. Uh, we'll, I'm just going to send people on out. Um, this is a battle that we have won as far as our knowledge in the war on CWD. It's not over. But, hey, we've got a bright spot that we can look at. So home processors, I can already hear you rejoicing in the background. This is great information. So, folks, have a good night. Keep your knives sharp and disinfectable.